Jorge drinks orange juice in the morning, potassium, followed most days by oatmeal, antioxidants, and keeps red meat to once a week. When he wants a snack, he's apt to open a can of sardines. They're rich in omega-3s, also tasty. He does simple exercises in the morning and runs in the evening, not overdoing it, but aerating those 40-year-old lungs and giving his 40-year-old heart a chance to strut its stuff. Resting heart rate, 63. Jorge wants to look and feel 40 when he gets to 50, but fate is a joker. Jorge Castro isn't even going to see 41. Hello, and welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest book at the top of the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or regift it. I'm Brian. And I'm Barbara. Today, we're reviewing Holly by Stephen King, number one on the September 24th and October 1st lists. And we're recording this from the sea, the South China Sea to be exact, where we are on a long delayed, pandemic delayed vacation. So you won't get to hear our golden retriever or fluffy cat in the background this episode. If you hear an ear-splitting seven short beeps followed by one long beep, though, that's not our spoiler alert. That's the <laughs> boat on fire or hitting an iceberg, neither of which happen very often, as I understand it. Well, I don't think we're going to get any icebergs in the South China Sea. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably not. Well, before we get to our new number one, what else is happening on the October 1st, 2023 list? Five books fell off. Five new ones came on. Tell. The new Tom Clancy book, Tom Clancy, the brand, not the author, Weapons Grade by Don Bentley is one and done. Mm, didn't make the grade this week? Well played. Also one and done, Craig Johnson's The Longmire Defense. No longer mired on the bestseller list. <laughs> and we are fast approaching the FCC-mandated cap on dubious puns. Aw. Look out for the little guy. That's a book title, not a warning. <laughs> This book is a fake memoir of Ant-Man from the Marvel Universe. It's completed its modest one-week run at the unlucky number 13. No respect for the little guy. None. And Jennifer Weiner's latest novel, The Breakaway, is gone after two weeks on the list. And the first debut novel to make the list in a couple of months, Fran Littlewood's Amazing Grace Adams, is gone after one week at number 14. A bestseller first time out. Good for her. What's that one about? It's a comic novel about a 45-year-old mother trying to win back her estranged daughter on the day of her daughter's 16th birthday. On the cover of the book is a, a woman, presumably the title character, smiling wickedly and holding up her middle finger. <laughs> I would guess directing it at anyone who walks past in the bookstore and doesn't pick up a copy. She's got attitude. Yeah. And on the Amazon site, okay, they've decided to protect our delicate sensibilities by covering up the raised middle finger with a big orange sticker with a blurb, you know, one of those author blurbs. This is Mary Beth Keene saying, I rooted for Grace from the first sentence. Mm, okay, I'll bite. What is the first sentence? Grace is hot. That's it? Yep. So what, like hot as in sexy or hot as in feverish? Well, I guess whichever one makes you more likely to root for her from the first sentence. I guess so. So what's new on the list? Okay, Vince Flynn, Code Red by Kyle Mills is new. Fall of Ruin and Wrath by Jennifer Armentrout. The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff. And two debuts. Ooh. 
one by the 19-year-old British actress Millie Bobby Brown, who played the character Eleven in Stranger Things from Netflix. Hmm. Her book is called 19 Steps. It's a novel based on her own family history. Ghostwritten by author Kathleen McCurl, or McGurl rather, who did not get her name on the cover, Mm. causing some controversy. And finally, a debut novel by Nina Simon made the list. Not to be confused with Nina Simone. Ah. Nina Simon is an engineer, an exhibition designer, and museum executive from California. Her mystery novel is called Mother Daughter Murder Night. Cool title. Have you had any of those? Any what? Mother Daughter Murder Nights. Uh, I'm not at liberty to say. I'll I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> Spe- <laughs> Speaking of mother daughter stories, our old friend Bonnie Garmus has some news this week. Lessons in Chemistry has debuted its Apple TV miniseries, and we saw what two or three episodes already. We saw the first four episodes. So what do you think so far? I loved it. I thought that the adaptation sort of nailed the situation, the frustration, the challenges, the obstacles of the main character, and I just I like, I couldn't believe we had to leave for this trip before the fifth episode uh, came we'll, out. We'll get back to it. You know, <laughs> I enjoyed it too. I do you remember that when we reviewed the book and I had already heard about the production mm-hmm. and I mentioned that she's uh, the main character Elizabeth Zott is described as very very tall a large person and the her love interest is described as physically repulsive yes and I looked at the actress cast and I'm like they went for the petite Brie Larson and a very good-looking actor um, I was a little concerned about that it turns out Brie Larson nails it she nails it she's got the character my doubts have been eased. <laughs> I'm you looking tend- forward to the rest of the series. Yes, you tend to worry, but I think they got it yeah, right. Yeah, maybe I should trust more. <laughs> so let's talk about our new number one. What do we know about the author? Well, Stephen King, 76 years old, lives in Maine and Florida. He has sold over 300 million books. Wow. Yeah, in the 50 years since 1974, he's published 66 novels, 11 fiction collections, 21 screenplays, five works of nonfiction, a couple of graphic novels, and one musical play, Ghost Brothers of Darkland County with John Mellencamp. We should see that. Yes. Oh, and there's been 68, at least, 68 movie adaptations, Something like 43, it's hard to keep track, there's so many, 43 television shows or series, still counting. King is surrounded by writers in his own life. He married Mm. Tabitha Spruce in 1971. She's a novelist. They have three children, two boys and a girl, both of their sons, Owen and Joseph. They're novelists, among other endeavors. Their daughter, Naomi, is a Unitarian Universalist minister in Florida. So she's also a writer. How so? Writes a sermon every week. Well, there you go. King, of course, is most famous for his horror stories, but his latest novel, Holly, is a thriller. The title character, Holly Gibney, was introduced in 2014 in King's Edgar Awarding mystery novel, Mr. Mercedes. The book, Holly, is published by Scribner. It's 446 pages with a readership about 60% female. The audiobook is 15 hours and 24 minutes, read by Justine Loop, the actress who played Holly Gibney in the Mr. Mercedes TV miniseries. Which we saw. Well, we saw the first season anyway. What'd you think? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I mean, it was gripping, it was engrossing, and I thought it was interesting the way that they they introduced the Holly character. Mm. I didn't, this is not how I pictured her based on reading this novel, Holly, but that's okay. Well, they took some liberties in the novel 
she's well in this novel she's in her 50s and in the TV show she's clearly in her 30s but they did put some of the quirks personality traits in the thing that I noticed and I enjoyed the TV series the um, I had read that he has a cameo or an appearance as the character diner patron yes so I'm looking forward to that and by the time they had an actual diner scene of course I'd completely forgotten of course and in this particular diner scene the serial killer is doing an interview and apparently out of the stress of the interview he starts fantasizing about killing everybody in the diner like brutally with a knife so there's they show this there's a lot of blood it was pretty gory and yeah and the lots of people dead and as the camera pans across i'm like that's stephen king yeah that was great playing a guy who was like one of the short order cooks sprawled across the divider his eyes staring out a big pool of blood around his neck and then i remembered oh yeah he plays diner patron <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't say he played the dead one but he he did a very convincing dead guy he did he did and i still you were so cute when you found him like that's stephen king <laughs> yeah so that was fun and that made me wonder like does he appear in a lot of the adaptation it turns out Yes, he appears quite often. Oh, interesting. Sometimes he may even have lines. I'm not sure. It's not always cameos. And I prepared a little quiz for you for fun. These quizzes are always for fun. (laughs) And here it is. I'm going to name, what is it? One, two, three, four places that he appeared, movie or TV, and the roles. And you have to match them up. Oh, my Lord. So just give it a good shot. So here are the four. The movie Pet Cemetery from 1989 he appears in. All right. The movie Thinner from 1996. Never saw that one. The Shining, not the famous Kubrick film, but the 1997 miniseries. And then finally, an episode of The Simpsons from 2000. The episode was called Insane Clown Poppy. So those are the shows. Pet Cemetery, Thinner, The Shining, The Simpsons. And here are the roles. In one of them, he plays himself. One, orchestra conductor, pharmacist, Minister. Oh man! So I'm give it a suck shot. At this. All right. So I'm going to take a guess that he played himself in The Simpsons. Beep 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 beep. That is correct. What? One point. Woo. Very good. Okay. All right. I don't remember an orchestra conductor in Pet Cemetery or, but I didn't see The Shining miniseries, so I'm going to say. Orchestra conductor in the Shining miniseries. Yes, what? two for two. Are you kidding me? The orchestra conductor is a very important part in the Shining, and apparently he's in the miniseries. This very is good. So there's only two left: Pet Cemetery and Thinner, Pharmacist and Minister. So in Pet Cemetery, I thought there was a pharmacy. So I'm going to guess pharmacist in that one. Oh. He plays a minister. Oh. And he plays a pharmacist in Thinner, but oh. you got two out of four. Very oh, good. Yeah, I mean, I could have flipped a coin. That's fun. So go look up these films. See if you can spot Stephen King. It's all very fun. That sounds fun. Okay, well, what about the story in this novel? So Holly Gibney is a 55-year-old, shy, reclusive woman Mm -hmm. with an inferiority complex and various OCD-type character traits. She owns and works the Finders Keepers private detective agency with her partner, Peter Huntley. They get occasional help on their cases from Jerome Robinson, a black Harvard undergraduate, as well as his younger sister, Barbara, a 17-year-old budding poet. Right, and the agency is hired by Penelope Dahl to find her daughter, Bonnie Ray, a young library aide who has gone missing. 
Holly works this case more or less on her own because her partner, Pete, is at home sick with COVID. The story is set in 2021 at the height of the pandemic, though Pete does help out Holly here and there on the case with tasks that he can do remotely while he's still sick. The book cuts back and forth between two converging storylines, Holly as she works the missing person case, and the perpetrators as, starting several years earlier, they carry out a series of abductions, said perpetrators being a pair of semi-retired professors in their 80s. Rodney Harris, a professor of physiology and human nutrition, and his wife Emily, who was in the English department. And by the way, this is no spoiler. We find out right from the beginning of the book that these two Harrises are kidnapping young people, locking them up in their basement, and quite disturbingly, eating them. Yes, that's what they do, and it's revealed right away. Rodney, the human nutrition professor, who, by the way, is even more eccentric than any professor I've ever had, (laughs) has developed a crackpot theory that a diet of human flesh can stave off the aging process. So we readers learned that Bonnie Ray is the fifth abduction by the Harrises, all victims taken from the vicinity of the local college where they used to work. And no one has caught on to the pattern, mainly because the Harrises spread out the abduction over a period of years. And also, for the most part, they choose people who don't have a lot of tight family connections or friends, and they're either not missed or they're assumed to have just taken off without notice. Plus, no one expects a couple of 80-year-old academics to be serial killers. Serial cannibal killers. Even more unusual. Yes. So, does Holly crack the case? Is she a match for a couple of canny, ruthless octogenarians? Does she track down the Harrises before Bonnie Ray becomes the fifth sacrifice to their unorthodox dietary regimen? And most importantly, would the Harrises like some fries with their meal? Ugh. For answers to these <laughs> and other pressing questions, read the book! As we did. So let's talk about what we thought. This was fun. It was fun reading the new Stephen King. Uh, what did you think? First category, grab and grip. So I would like to say that this book did not pull me in, but that mm-hmm. would not be accurate. Okay. I finished it in less than three days, and I do not have time to devote, but I did it anyway. And the, uh, it was interesting because the tension that drove the book in this case is not a whodunit, because we learn immediately who's doing it. Yeah. The tension is in how and when are the two storylines going to intersect. And that tension built and built throughout the book. I was hooked and pulled along all the way through to the end, and I gave this category a 3.5. That's a good score. And we talked uh, an episode or two ago about how we could actually measure grab and grip by how quickly you yes. zip through the book. I gave it a three, which is a, another good score. I also noticed right off the bat that he's setting himself up for a, kind of a problem. We know who the killers are and we know why they're doing it, which reminded me, I think it was the old show Columbo that had that format. You mm. see the killer right at the beginning and the suspense is, how is he going to be caught? How is Columbo going to put you know, the ovens together. So that's the suspense of this as well. In addition to the fact that the fifth victim, Bonnie Ray, we don't actually know for a long time in the book what happens to her. She may still be alive, so there's a sense of urgency. Yes. King understands the concept of grab and grip. Okay. I, um, I saw a quote from him in an interview. King recalls asking a bookmobile driver when he was young, when he was a kid, <laughs> Do you have any stories about how kids really are? She gave him Lord of the Flies, and King says this. It was the first book with hands, Mm. strong ones that reached out of the pages and seized me by the throat. Oh, wow. Now, that's grab and grip. That's what we're looking for, hands that reach out of the book and grab you and pull you in. What a great memory. 
So he he knows that's the point of fiction. He knows how to build it. He leaves himself some good story questions that we're very curious about. Also, he adds some little ones. You know, he's a very experienced writer. Did you notice that he's got this joke? Yes. So Holly finds out that she's inherited a lot of money from her mother unexpectedly. Her mother dies either, I can't remember, in the book or right before the book starts. Yes. And um, she didn't know she was going to inherit. And she tells this joke to herself. A new millionaire walks into the bar. Right. And she spends the entire novel figuring out a punchline. So, of course, we as readers are like, what's it going to be? Right. And King knows how to draw that out all the way through. That's very interesting. I I had that scenario as as an example of flair. What I found was a well-done piece of flair was the running joke that Holly is imagining telling to describe the unusual sensation of becoming an overnight millionaire before anything in her life changes. And I think that is so interesting. It's a singular sensation, and there's no real word to describe it, or none that I know of. So it's kind of fun to hear her trying to describe it. So there, you could say that's his uh, grab and grip or his flair. I did have one other little thought about the first category, which is meta suspense Mm. I'll tell you what I mean so King writes horror he writes supernatural he's also written quite a few suspense novels Mm. with no supernatural theme so there's another layer of suspense which is which is this going to be Mm. and this is even stronger in this book because if you look up where has Holly Gibney appeared and she's appeared in like four or five of his novels and novellas and some of them are supernatural oh interesting and I don't know what to call that. Is that a valuable trait in a work of fiction that you don't actually know what genre it's going to be? Mm. So I'm reading and thinking, are these two cannibal old folk killers going to turn out to have a supernatural kind of evil to them or mm. not? And I didn't know. So that was another kind of suspense. That I called it meta suspense. I like that. So let's go on to Flair. You already gave the example of this running joke that... Yeah was a nice bit of flair. What did you get for this category? So, I mean, it's Stephen King. There's mm-hmm. definitely flair. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a, a nice touch. He had a poet um, in this storyline working on a segment of a new poem, and she was struggling with writing some nice pieces of flair. I thought that was ah. sort of a an internal little, um, you know, turning over a bit of flair. I, but I, I enjoyed this category. Um, and one of the examples uh, of, a, of a sentence that I noted was um, without Peter or Barbara Robinson helping out or just hanging out the reception area feels like a held breath that was describing the reception area absent people because of COVID and I thought that that Mm. sort of description lands for many of the places that you know as we lived through COVID that's we were all holding our breath Um, but I I enjoyed this category and I gave it a three that's a nice example of flair that you gave but his his general writing style is what's been called cinematic. I remember this from a review of Stephen King from many, many years ago. And I think that's true. And he even said that. And I I found a quote where he said, I love the movies from the start. So when I started to write, I had a tendency to write in images because that was all I knew at the time. I think that's still true of his writing. It, It almost reads sometimes like a screenplay treatment. Yeah. Here's an example of his style that really seems like that. He pulls up his mask and rings the bell. Footsteps approach. The door opens. Mm. The woman who appears looks like a perfect match for the upscale voice. Light green blouse, dark green skirt. 
that's just very very cinematic writing where he's picturing it first and then just describing to you what he's seeing yeah. um, that's fine it works he still can turn a phrase once in a while absolutely uh, you gave an example I've got a couple um, Holly doesn't regain consciousness she rises back to it her brain feels like a blood-soaked sponge in a bone cage mm. another example is she feels like she could drink all five of the Great Lakes dry mm. but he, but he really is cinematically oriented even one of his pieces of flair sort of brings that out and at one point he, the character goes into a bowling alley and Stephen King is trying to describe the sound and he says the crash of the pins when the balls hit is even louder like the part of a Hollywood action movie when a disposable character cuts the red wire instead of the blue one <laughs> yeah that's a good one so this is not a criticism of his style I'm just describing it sure. I think he's pretty good with dialogue for instance yeah I think so too there was another um, example that I had that I forgot to share earlier and okay. it's there was a shout out to Carrie one of his first wildly successful novels um, when the the prom queen the, the mother of the missing person says that she was a prom queen but she didn't get blood thrown on her <laughs> I thought that was great well the, I've got the quote right here because that was one of my examples mm. no Miss America but she was a prom queen back in high school and nobody dumped a bucket of blood on her either exactly so he's allowed to self check his own work especially since Carrie's become such a big part of our cultural understanding anyway right but I liked the I gave as an example of flair all of the mystery books he name checked and referenced referenced throughout the novel I like that kind of thing he uh, references Agatha Christie yes Sherlock Holmes Michael Connolly yes there, here's the, the quote series. Holly is a fan of Michael Connolly's detective hero Harry Bosch and especially of Bosch's number one maxim get off your ass and go knock on doors he references John Sanford, Cormac McCarthy. So I enjoy all of that. And yeah. I gave flair for him, let me see, a three. Yep, you gave it the same as me. Okay, let's turn to the next category, which is Beam Me Up, the world building part of the book. Yeah, so I was definitely transported to this world of COVID with both sides of the pandemic controversy depicted. Um, the world of the killers taking people off the streets. I can't say that I enjoyed the world. Mm. Um, so like any crime detective series, the enjoyment is not in the crime, but in having the criminals get their comeuppance. Um, but I was definitely transported to this world and appreciated you know, the, the world that he built, and it was not hard to understand and to spend time there. Um, you know, again, I was, I was in the three-day marathon of getting, yeah. this, getting through this book, and I gave Beam Me Up category a three. I gave it a two and there wasn't anything, well there was one thing wrong with it that I'll talk about in a second. He, I thought he got the Ohio setting right for the most part. Mm -hmm. The procedural elements are okay. I, I don't think they're gripping and fascinating like let's say Michael Connolly but they were okay. The big thing that we need to talk about um, is the COVID part. Now this has gotten a lot of attention I didn't have any trouble with it. What what we what I mean here is, COVID is discussed throughout the book by many of the characters. The um, it's set in 2021. People are still wearing masks. People are still talking about who's vaccinated, who isn't. Some people are sick, like her partner is sick. Her mother actually dies of it and right. was a vaccine refuser. It's a recurring theme. I think that it even ties in with the main plot because doesn't Rodney Harris think that you don't need any of modern medicine because if you eat human livers, you're going to be protected against 
COVID and many other things like aging. So it's a theme, but it's also just uh, recurring examples of what it was like to, to live through it. Some people have said, well, that's Stephen King being political. I don't like it. You know, I want escapism. Well, can I react to that? Yeah. I, I didn't think that, I mean, I'd heard that beforehand, and mm-hmm. so I was sort of braced for it, but I thought it was very realistic. I mean, that is the world that we actually lived through. There were people who didn't believe that uh, COVID existed, and some of those people died of it. And, you know, there were people who didn't take any precautions, and their loved one, I knew I knew somebody whose loved one died mm-hmm. at Thanksgiving, where they were, somebody was whispering a... Um, an elf or a a gift exchange to the matriarch and that person ended up giving COVID to her and the matriarch died. I mean, it's just, that happened. What's a matriarch? What do you mean? The grandmother of the family. The grandmother, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't have any trouble with it. I didn't think it was political. I thought it was realistic because that's how it was. Well, look, I didn't read it as political, and I'll tell you exactly why. Because he's got plenty of characters on both sides exactly. all the way throughout the novel. It's not like he had his point of view and he made sure somehow that it was dominant or the only one that was valorized Agreed. in the novel. It's just not like that. It's more like he was describing what we all just went through. Exactly. He's got a quote uh, at one point in the book. If not for the computerized record-keeping systems, the city's hospitals might have no idea of even how many patients they have in care. Do you remember that period? Yeah. When this is over, Holly thinks, no one will believe it really happened. Yeah. So he's writing about it as a way of memorializing. I've already started to forget what it was like, and right. he's got it in this novel. Yeah. I'll give you another example. May I be Snoopy and ask if you're vaccinated? This is uh, Holly speaking, and the answer is double, Pfizer. Moderna, Holly says, it's the new meet and greet. <laughs> now, of course, there are people who who didn't get vaccinated and didn't think we should, but there were a lot of people who were very concerned about it and were talking about it. Yes. That's what this book is like to me. It's not actually political. It's just remembering yes. what we just went through. And I wanted to mention one other thing about this this theme. It's really important to the novel because it generated the germ. You and I talk about what's the germ when yes. we see a movie or a, a read a novel. The germ is the scene that the author thought of first. It's what started the whole creative process. And he actually says at the end of the book in the acknowledgments, I had to write this book to write one scene, Mm. which I saw clearly in my mind. Holly attending her mother's Zoom funeral. Yeah. So that's it. We had Zoom funerals for a while. We did. And he wanted to write a novel around it. He said, I didn't have a story to go with it until I came across this headline. Everyone thought they were a sweet old couple until the bodies began turning up in the backyard. (laughs) Killer old folks, I thought. That's my story. So before he had a story, he had a scene that was COVID-related, and he wanted to write about it. And I thought this is a good place to put in our audio example, since the germ, he tells us, we rarely get to know this, we have to guess, but he tells us that was the germ of the book. So let's just play a clip from the audiobook, The Zoom Funeral for Holly's Mother. The Zoom funeral Holly is attending could almost be a scene in a TV drama. The focus is on each speaker, eulogizing the dear departed, of course. But there are also occasional cuts to various grieving mourners in their homes. Not to Holly, though. 
she's blocked her video. She's a better, stronger person than she once was, but she's still a deeply private person. She knows it's okay for people to be sad at funerals, to cry and choke up, but she doesn't want anyone to see her that way, especially not her business partner or her friends. She doesn't want them to see her red eyes, her tangled hair, or her shaking hands as she reads her own eulogy, which is both short and as honest as she could make it. Most of all, she doesn't want them to see her smoking a cigarette. After 17 months of COVID, she's fallen off the wagon. Now, at the end of the service, her screen begins showing a kinescope featuring the dear departed in various poses at various locations while Frank Sinatra sings Thanks for the Memory. Holly can't stand it and clicks leave. That was the germ. Yeah, I mean, considering it's a rather short scene, I would not have picked it to be the germ, but he tells us it is. So there it is. Now, before we leave the, the category of world building, I only gave it a two. And the, and the main reason, like I did have a big problem with the literary scene. He likes to write about writers. He knows writers. He likes to write about creative people. And that's fine. But he does some kind of weird and off-putting stuff in this book. He's got these two characters, Jerome and Barbara... Robinson. And they've been in the earlier books about Holly. And Jerome is a Harvard student, and he gets a book contract. He's writing a history book. It's a six-figure book contract. Right out the bat, his first book, he's still an undergrad. And then Barbara, who's even younger, she's 17. She's a poet, and her mentor enters her in a very prestigious literary contest. And guess what happens? Well, she wins. Yeah. And she even sends a really abrasive note to the committee when they asked her for an essay about her work. And I've got the little um, quote here. And remember, she scrawled it on by hand on a torn out piece of notebook paper across the lines, like deliberately confrontational and irreverent. She said, I write poetry because without it, I am a dead engine. That, sh- that I should be asked to write an essay about my poetry after sending so much of it to you is idiotic. My poetry is my essay. She ends up winning this contest. and I, So here's my problem. She would not win after writing a letter like that. And secondly, what is with these established writers pretending that success in literary writing, whether it's you know, a nonfiction history book like Jerome's or poetry like hers is just so easy and automatic and happens right away. That's not realistic. Stephen King himself wrote four novels before he was, and he had already been writing and publishing short stories for like a decade. Took him four novels to get one published. That was Carrie. And he knows that. And remember, Nora Roberts did the same thing in her book, The Choice. Everything this young writer did was immediately gold. What is that? Why are why are they creating this fantasy? It puts me off. So I accept that it puts you off. I see it differently. They showed her getting a mentor and working hard and working hard with the mentor. And then after months of doing that, then submitting her work. And then she does win. I, I mean, I... Right. Without a single rejection, without anything that actual writers go through. Okay, but I guess I... It's okay. You can see it that way. I just, I thought that he did depict her working hard. And even though she didn't get any rejections, that she was mentored. And that is how 
you succeed. So I didn't think it seemed so easy. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So let's turn to the next category, new best friends. What did you think about that? Yeah, so I enjoyed Holly. I don't know that there were any, you know, other than Holly. I'm, I'm not sure. She was maybe the only new best friend. <laughs> there okay. Weren't, there weren't any others, really, that I was... Um, that I connected with, but I, I gave it a, I gave it a 3.5. That's mainly because of, because of Holly herself. That's correct. Which is, and he made a comment that he sort of fell in love with this character that mm. he, he called her a walk on, which is another cinematic or at least theater term. Yeah. And um, he's written like five stories with her now. Yeah. So I liked Holly. I, I did have this strange uh, realization that she was, better portrayed in the series almost than in the novel Mm. like she the quirks of her personality really came out in the in the miniseries and I didn't notice them as much in the book I didn't even realize what they were quite Mm. when I was just reading the novel Um, I think he does a good job with minor characters I think he really can bring somebody on and do just enough so that you connect to them enough so you care about them. I'll give you an example. One of the victims is named Ellen Craslaw, and he gives a little bit of background about her, and she uh, apparently came from a conservative family, but she was not herself, and she wanted to become vegetarian. And you remember the quote? When she quit eating flesh, they quoted the Bible at her left and right. (laughs) The pastor counseled her. Yeah. Okay, this is a character that we don't see very much, but just enough yeah. Stephen King puts in to uh, to make her come to life. I only gave this category a two because I didn't, like you, I didn't really connect deeply with any of the characters, and I didn't connect with Holly as much as you did. Mm. But let's turn to the last category, all the feels. What kinds of emotions did you have or not have as you read this? So I did feel some emotion. I Again, I felt like it was that grab and grip at the beginning. I was mm. anxious to get to the end. I was on edge to, to find out what happened. Um, I was not able to put this book down, which mm-hmm. has not always been my experience with Stephen King. Um, but I willingly gave up sleep to finish it. And I did have an emotional response to the various twists and turns. So I gave this category a three. Well, as did I. But I'm more I'm more curious about how the feelings you had with the scares. Like I I found that the structure of the ending was somewhat predictable, but still satisfying. You knew she's going to confront them, but the question is how. Right. How does that play out? And he does a good job with that. Yeah. The evil at the center of the story, you know, this weird cannibalism by these 80-year-olds, I would say it's not King's scariest novel, but it was pretty creepy. Like, here's it a was quote. Pretty creepy. They watch TV and have their dessert, spooning up a mixture of raspberry sorbet and Peter Steinman's brains. That's creepy. So I had an emotional reaction, but again, not quite as scary as some of his best. So I'm like, what did you feel about the evil in this book? So that this is so interesting that you're asking me this question because I, we don't tend to bring ourselves into this podcast, but my revulsion at what they were eating is the same revulsion I feel for when people eat meat. Because you're a vegetarian. Because I'm a vegetarian. As am I. So that's a really good question. Do we have less of an emotional reaction to a book like this because we're disgusted by all of it. Yeah, we're, we're numb to <laughs> we're it because we're always disgusted by what people are eating in terms of flesh. So we both gave that category all the feels a three and may- yeah. maybe others would give it a four because they just find it... Yeah, if, if people were so shocked and, shocking. and, and re- repulsed by it, then they might have given it a, a higher... Yeah. 
That's a, that's an interesting point. So when yeah. you add all our scores together, this comes out to be a two point nine. Yeah, that's a solid three star rating. Absolutely. Uh, which ranks at sixth out of the fifteen novels that we reviewed this year so far, just below Tom Lake and just above the five star weekend. That seems right. Yeah, and the three social media scores we like to look at: Amazon, Goodreads, and Storygraph. They average out to 4.30, which sounds good, but remember these bestsellers are almost always in the fours. So it actually turns out that he only places ninth out of the 15 on the social media scores. Interesting. Yeah, tied with Stormwatch by CJ Box. So we actually placed it higher in terms of ranking. Yeah. Well, speaking of CJ Box, did you see that the Joe Pickett series at Paramount, which we did watch when we reviewed that book, canceled after two seasons? That also seems right. (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> At least his novel got ratings equal to Stephen King's new one. Well, there is that consolation. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks for joining us here in the South China Sea. Yes. We'll see you next episode when we review Gabrielle Zevin's huge bestseller, Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And Tomorrow. Yes. And until tomorrow, wherever we will be, keep dreaming, keep flying. Keep laughing, keep crying. And don't stop until you've read them all. <laughs>